the first time, never been here before, it's, it's just great to have you with us. My name is uh, Dave, and I'm the pastor of preaching here at Four Oaks. And, you know, we recognize that for some guests, coming to a new church is kind of like a going to a new country or kind of like a cross-cultural experience where you walk in and there's a new group of people and they're singing new songs maybe to you. It's a new location. It's different practices than you're accustomed to. And we're just very grateful that you chose to navigate all that to come and to be with us this morning. So thanks for being here. You can open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And while you're doing that, I want to invite you to pray for something. Um, this, at the end of this month, there is a, a Sojourn Network intensive. An intensive is like a micro-conference. And for the benefit of our guests, Sojourn Network is the network of churches that we are affiliated with as a local church. Well, this is the first event that, I mean, to be honest, this is the first event I'm responsible for. I I have a role in Sojourn Network, and I'm responsible for this event, and I want it to go well, and I want the men that are going to be coming to be served and loved and equipped and cared for, and I want to know that my church is praying for me, praying for the pastoral team as we go and as we go to serve. Uh, And so I I know I need prayer. One of my goals for this morning is to convince you that I need prayer. And so would you please pray? It's going to be the end of this month for for that event. Okay, so the guests, the reason I asked you to open to 2 Corinthians is because we are in a series on the epistle of 2 Corinthians. The series is titled, Weak is Strong. And we have made our way into chapter 2 where I will read verses 5 through verse 11. And you can follow along with me. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's no problem because I'm going to read it out loud. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive... I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The title of this morning's message is How the Saints Outwit Satan. How the Saints Outwit Satan. Satan. And would you join me and let's just, let's pray and let's ask God for his help. Lord, we, we come before you because we, we need you. Lord, we need you to understand your word. This is your word, not our word. And we know that, that you guide us by your spirit into understanding your word. 
So we pray that you would help us toward that end. Help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. On April 30th, 1943, the corpse of one Major William Martin was washed up on a beach in Spain. The body was spotted by a local fisherman and then reported to the local authorities in that area, who also happened to be Nazi sympathizers at the time. When the body was examined, the authorities discovered not only the typical wallet litter, you know, the stuff that's in a wallet, like, a, like pictures and receipts and bills and stuff like that, but they found a letter from a lieutenant general to Major Martin, subtly alluding to an allied invasion of Greece. The Nazis were, of course, suspicious. I mean, you have this body just happens to wash up on the shore. And so they launched an extensive investigation using a pathologist to check out the body. They brought in document experts, various specialists, all of it to legitimize the authenticity of what it was they had received. But then something remarkable happened that in the mind of the Nazis seemed to automatically authenticate what was going on. And that is that the Allies began staging their tanks and their troops for the invasion of Greece. And to the Nazis, this this confirmed that these documents certainly were real. This was going to happen. And now, since they were convinced that the invasion was coming at Greece, they redistributed their forces to fortify Greece, pulling their troops away from places like Sicily, which is just what the Allies hoped. Because the Nazis were duped. They were duped. They were actually part of this elaborate web of disinformation known as Operation Mincemeat. It's a great book, by the way, Operation Mincemeat. The goal of Operation Mincemeat was to outwit the enemy. The appearance of a military buildup in Greece was nothing more than a ploy complete with fake troops and inflatable plastic tanks that made it appear like they were building up that area. Major Martin was the false identity that was assigned to a corpse that was perfect for that particular uh, spy craft. And a fake letter had been planted on him, a fake history, a backstory. They even put an obituary in the London newspaper about him. The invasion site was actually Sicily, 500 miles away. The very place that the Germans had pulled their troops from in order to redeploy and protect Greece. So the seduction of the Nazis over to Greece worked. And this particular seduction was eventually called by one historian, quote, the most spectacular single episode in the history of deception. Which is just another way to say that the Allies pulled off the greatest head fake of the century. They had outwitted the enemy. 
Outwitting the enemy or being outwitted by the enemy is a central theme of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And as we drop in here, we discover that Paul had been under attack by a leader in the Corinthian church. Now, some people speculate when they read this and they read this, this section on whether these verses were actually the case of incest back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but it's more likely that there was a leader that was attacking Paul because it's apparent that whatever took place was specifically against Paul, where the case of incest, of course, was not. So to respond to these attacks, Paul wrote a letter that we heard about last week, was ultimately lost to us. It's called the Sorrowful Letter by Theologians. And that letter was aimed at calling the Corinthians to action against this leader that had stood up and opposed Paul. And so the letter was received by the Corinthians. The Corinthians read the letter. They were smitten by the rebuke. They disciplined the leader, meaning they church-disciplined them. Interesting little thing in verse 6 there, but the word for punishment in verse 6 actually means an official disciplinary action by a body of people. That's what took place. So they church-disciplined this man, and then they notified Paul. Well, after being disciplined, by the grace of God, this man repented. In fact, he experienced not just sadness, but deep sorrow. And so you would think that's the end of the story. I mean, you would think that was going to be the point of the whole thing. That's all you could ask for. The church responds. They exercise church discipline. The sinner repents. And Paul's place of honor is restored within that congregation. But that's not what happened. Not by a long shot. See, the Corinthians were having a difficult time forgiving this man. Now, we don't know exactly what that represents. It probably wasn't every single Corinthian. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 3 that Paul kind of had his own fan club because there were those within the church that were saying, I follow Apollos. But there was a whole group that said, I follow Paul. And so it may be that that group in particular was agitated and they were having a hard time forgiving. We don't know exactly who it was. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in this section that we just read, Paul is moving to diagnose the problem. And what is so fascinating about this is that Paul sees this as something more than just a sinner in the hands of an angry church. He sees this as a clever act of deception by the enemy. See, to Paul, the risk here was that the devil was going to outfox the, the Corinthian church through their bitterness, that the devil was staging an invasion into the Corinthian church. And so Paul calls for certain countermeasures. He says in verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. See, Paul reminds us that when it comes to the designs of Satan, we need not be ignorant. And then Paul describes in this section two specific areas where the designs of the enemy are exposed. In fact, let me just turn that around and say it more positively. These are two ways the saints can outwit Satan. So here's the first one. Two ways the saints can outwit Satan. Here's the first one. 
in the way we view the church. In the way we view the church. Paul makes a surprising statement as he goes to interpret this experience for the Corinthians, beginning with verse 5. He says, now, if anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, but to all of you. In other words, the pain of this situation, though it was directed at me, because I'm a part of you, it's never simply about me. It touches you as well. What is that supposed to mean? Well, what's happening here is Paul is applying a doctrine that he set out for the Corinthians in their first letter, 1 Corinthians, somewhere around chapter 12. And the, the concept that he set out for the Corinthians was the interdependence of the members of a local church and the members of the universal church as well. Let me take you back there just so you can refresh your recollection on what I'm talking about. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, and then 26 through 27 as well. This is what Paul said. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. See, this is what the Corinthians were taught during Paul's first visit. This is what he was taught. This is what they were taught in his first letter. But then one guy, one leader, one divisive person revealed how poorly they really applied it. How maybe they had listened, maybe they had got it, maybe they had discussed it in their small group, but they really didn't apply it. And Paul's conclusion in that is, Corinthians, you're being outwitted. You're being outwitted by the enemy. See, the church is supposed to be a family. The church is supposed to be people that are interdependent upon one another so that if one is attacked, the other come along. We're a family. But the reality was that this idiot was trashing Paul And they did nothing. They did nothing. And we don't know what that really represents. I mean, I think the Corinthian culture was somewhat similar to the postmodernism that we live in today that characterizes the year 2015, at least in America. You know, that idea of, hey, wait a minute, don't don't, don't hassle me with this, okay? I don't want to be bothered. Or, or why should I get involved? I mean, that, that's this guy's business. That's this guy's problem. I, can't, I don't need to make that my problem. Or you have this divisive leader who's rising up, but again, that's him. That's not me. See, the mission statement of this church, the one that you would have read on their website, was welcome to the Corinthian church where it's every man for himself, every woman for herself. And so here Paul is answering that by saying, listen, Corinthians, the church is not this detached group of people that are utterly disconnected. The church is a family. And the family is always a connected system where the behavior of one affects the life of another family member. I mean, if you're here and you're a parent, you know this. You know if your child suffers, you suffer. If you're a kid and you have a a prodigal brother or a sister, you know 
Their suffering affects your family. Their decisions affect your family. And the opposite is true as well. I mean, if you have a family member, you have a first cousin who's, who's an Olympic gold winner, oh my goodness, that's wonderful for the whole family. We identify with that. We're proud of him or her for that. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, Corinthians, here's how it works. Verse 5, the pain he caused to me, he caused to you because we're a family. The forgiveness I extended to him, you must extend to him, verse 11, because we're a family. See, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, Corinthians, don't miss Satan's design here. He wants to convince you to act like individuals. He wants to convince you to act like you're not together. He wants to convince you to act that you're not a family that you're just independent human beings. He wants you to forget the church. So Paul is just beginning to remind them that, that, that having a connection with God means having a connection with the people of God. And so he keeps punctuating this point, and, and he moves to do it in another way. It's not just kind of coming at the Corinthians, but then he uses this guy who had repented as, as like exhibit B. And he begins to point out that even the sinner understood the doctrine of the church. According to verse 7, his, Paul's concern for the sinner who had repented is that to be separated from the church any longer could trigger an excessive sorrow. But really what's going on here is Paul is saying, yo, Corinthians, he gets it. He understands. He recognizes what it represents to be apart from the family of God's people. He's put outside the church, and it's crushing him. In fact, you have this unexpected twist in the text here where Paul, the guy who was being victimized by this leader, Paul is now advocating for the guy who trashed him, He's advocating, trying to get him back into the family. So the people who were not victimized by the behavior, directly I mean, are the ones keeping him out, and the one who was is trying to get him back in. Why? Because Paul was deadly serious about what it meant to be a member of a church. And he understood what it meant in the heavenlies and in one's walk with God to be outside of the church. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you, do you ever think about what it means to be a member of a local church? Paul was deadly serious about this. Are, are we deadly serious about it? This guy is outside the church, and all he, all he can think about is getting back in. Because there's something about being outside of the church that is affecting him, that makes him feel vulnerable, that makes him feel exposed, that makes him feel like he wants to be back in the family. There's something he's seeing that we can so often miss. I brought a quote this morning by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He once said, quote, It is our failure as Christian people to understand what our church membership really means. The dignity, the privilege, the responsibility that causes most of our problems. See, this leader, this this leader who opposed Paul, his membership had been revoked, and for the first time, oh, he got it. He understood what his membership really means. Do you? 
Do, do we understand what this membership really means? Or, or is membership in a church kind of like a, well, you know, I can take it, I can leave it. It really doesn't matter all that much. See, if this guy's response seems excessive, man, he's getting really bent out of shape because he's put outside the church. If that seems somehow excessive to you, to you or to any of us, it may be that we are the ones at risk of being outwitted by the enemy because there's something this man perceives that we do not. There's something that Paul is advocating that we're not getting. Listen, in the entire history of the church, it has never been an easier time to simply attend church than to be in the United States and just attend a church. It's never been easier. In fact, we make church a lot like we make relationships out within the culture. We approach church like it's just a hookup. Rather than something we commit to over time and remain in, it's just a place I hook up with it once a week, and sometimes it's there, sometimes it's over there. If I like that one there, we shop it. Funny, membership in the early church, like in the first 100 to 200 years, membership classes were like three years long. Three years long. And listen, no piggies barbecue. (laughs) Nothing. Nothing like that. I I was reading this past week, um, Screw Tape Letters, so it's C.S. Lewis's book where... uh, Screw tape, the head demon, has a, uh, has a demon he's training called uh, Wormwood. And he's talking to Wormwood about how to outwit the enemy. And he says the following. He says, surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for a church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. Listen, are you a pupil this morning or are you a critic? Because that answer, the answer to that question reveals whether we see what Paul sees, whether we see even what the repentant sinner sees. Now, maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, Dave, you don't, you don't understand. You don't get it because you don't know what I've been through. You don't know how I've been hurt by the church, to which I would say, you're right. I don't. But Paul does. Paul does. I mean, let's, you and I, listen to a guy who had a leader publicly oppose him, And nobody would stand up for him. In fact, let's listen to a guy who would have been the object of the most appalling behavior from Christians in the history of the Christian world. Let's listen to him. You know, maybe you're here this morning because the last church disappointed you. I'm really glad you're here. But you know what? We're going to disappoint you too. We are. We're going to disappoint you. Anywhere people gather, disappointment takes place. Anywhere people gather, sin takes place. In fact, now that you're here, even more sin will take place. And you're in the right place with the rest of us sinners. 
See, our goal is not to deny it. It's not to ignore it. It's simply to be humble before it when it erupts and to seek to please God and apply Scripture in the way that we deal with it. Because by doing so, we won't be outwitted by the enemy. So this whole first section has to do with how we deal with the doctrine of the church, the way we view the church so that we're not outwitted by the enemy. So that's my first point. Second and last point has to do with the way we respond to repentance. Again, the category is two ways the saints can outwit Satan, and the second one is in the way we respond to repentance. Now, again, let's remember the context. We've got a sinner, and the sinner has sinned in a serious way. The sinner has sinned in a serious way, and then the sinner has repented in a very sincere way. So he sins in a serious way, he repents in a very sincere way, but the church will not accept his sincere repentance. And so Paul steps in and he begins to appeal. And he says to them, guys, um, you know, this guy's on the verge of being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Would you please change the way that you're thinking of him, forgive him, reaffirm your love for him, forgive him even as I've forgiven you and even as I've forgiven him. Remember, this was first about me and I've forgiven him. Why can't you forgive him? And there's a final line in there where Paul says, I want you to do all of this so that, quote, we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. So there's something about bitterness in particular, unforgiveness in particular, that has contained within it a design of Satan that affects the church in a unique way. Apparently, there is one evil device, one design Satan has that seeks to convince us not to, not to forgive one another, that seeks to influence the way we respond when somebody repents of sin. Now, before we go there, I want to stop for a second. I want to pull something out of the text and kind of interact with it a little bit because here we have the Corinthians, they're struggling with bitterness. But Paul then says that their bitterness is a design of the enemy. And so it kind of surfaces this question of, well, is my unforgiveness sin or is my unforgiveness really the work of Satan? In other words, when, when that happens to me, should I be repenting of bitterness or should I be binding a spirit of bitterness? How am I supposed to respond to that? If you've never heard of a man named David Pollison, David Pollison is the president of a group called the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, CCEF. If you're interested in uh, how to apply Scripture to some of the most complex problems that exist today, I would say you want to get to know the name of David Pollison and that group, CCEF. I was in a meeting with him once, and he was asked about this whole tension that, that emerges in this passage, because this isn't the only place in the New Testament that this, this comes out, where there's, there's talk of sin, Satan, and they're somehow together, and they're all kind of in the, in the porridge. And he was asked about this tension, and so he just stood up, grabbed a marker, grabbed a whiteboard, and started sketching something out. And I wanted to take you through what he took us through on that day, because it, it, it so helped me. And what he began with was a circle, and within the circle was the human 
heart. So that should go up on the screen there. Yeah, the human heart. And so as we study Scripture, we begin to discover, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, that Scripture centers the human heart at the source of all motivation. At the core of why we do what we do is that it's the human heart. Which why all the way back in Proverbs, why all the way back in Proverbs it says that keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And Jesus would say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In Matthew 15, he said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And that is what defiles a person. So we have the human heart, and it's at the center of the process of change. And so when a person is converted, they get a new heart. When a person repents, they get a change of heart. But the work of all that is in the heart. So at the very center is the heart. But the heart is not the whole picture. Because the heart comes physically embodied. And that's where there's another concentric circle that goes around the heart. The heart is contained in a body. And I'm talking about the heart as the spirit, of course, not the literal heart. But the heart is physically embodied in a frame, in a frame that we all have that is, that is decaying, that has proper problems, that's aging, it's fallen, it's imperfect. And not only that, but there's chemistry involved with our brain. There are problems that we have biologically. There are problems physiologically. We're, we're, we're always, we're always um, kind of aging going further over the hill. And that these two things interact with one another. They're not separated. That the, the, the soul is an embodied soul. And you can say, no, 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 my, my heart is completely separate from my body, but I, I deny you sleep for three days, and you'll see how much your soul and your body are connected. So you, there, that's very helpful. We have, we have the human heart, and then we have a heart that is, is physically embodied, but it doesn't end there. Because that body and that heart are socially embedded. Now, what I mean by that is that that every human being is embedded in some kind of social systems. Maybe you had an abusive father. Maybe your family grew up in poverty. There are certain ways that you have been sinned against. There's a certain culture or a race that you were raised up within. Maybe you have a two-parent family, and that's had a profound and a very positive effect on you. My point is that all of these shape us. All of these influence us in some way. They have to be part of the picture. They're not the human heart. That's at the core. But the human heart has these other realities that are in orbit around it that must be understood. So, you might think, well, that's very helpful. That's very good. But it doesn't end there. Because there's another layer as well. And that is that our being is also spiritually embattled. We're spiritually embattled. Paul says to the Ephesians, we struggle not against flesh and blood. It's not just a matter of of being physically embodied, but there are demons and spirits and, and powers and things that have to be taken in place. In fact, the devil is portrayed in 1 Peter 5 as a roaring lion going around seeking whom he may, he may devour. 
And so we arrive in this passage in Corinthians and we see that they're called to forgive from the heart because they're sin and so they must forgive, but somehow neglecting to do so means that they're being outwitted by the enemy. They're being spiritually embattled in the way that this whole thing is playing out within their heart. There's a sense where behind all bitterness, behind all forgiveness, all unforgiveness, stands the enemy seeking to influence, seeking to give power to it. But it doesn't end there because there's one very last hopeful, incredible circle, and that is the providential God of creation who encircles all of it for his good purposes, who reminds us in Romans chapter 8 that he causes all things, all things, all spiritual embattlement, all socially embeddedness, all physically embodiedness, even the issues of the human heart, he causes all things to work together for good to those that love him and those that are called according to his purpose. We studied Job last year. We saw Job, God allows Job to be embattled by Satan. He allows Job to be afflicted in his body, but he still kind of wraps it all up and, at the end, and he says, but it was all for me. It was all for me. It was designed for you and for my glory. But I was in and through all of it. Joseph is, Joseph is the object. Joseph in, in Genesis, he's the object of this incredibly dysfunctional family He's got this enabling father that's just always doing things for him, different from the other kids. He's got these brothers that are evil. In fact, they're involved in human trafficking, getting rid of him, selling him into slavery. And yet at the very end of the story in Genesis, Joseph looks at his brothers and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And this is a very helpful way to understand some of the interactions of of the body, soul, weakness, spirit. And by the way, just for, for those of you that are here and involve, are involved in counseling, let me just suggest something. You don't ignore all of these other things and just plow right into the human heart. The goal of counseling is not just to penetrate down into the heart. In fact, you want to start pretty much on the outside with the providential God by reminding the people that you're counseling that God is big and God is good and he's providential. But let me understand how you've been spiritually embattled. Let me understand the reality of where you've been embedded socially so that I can understand, you know, how you were raised and the different things that might influence you. And, and when we move from that, let me, how have you been sleeping, you know? And, and, and what are some of the things physically that we need to consider? And are there physiological issues that might be coming into play on why you feel the way you feel? So, yeah, we're driving toward the heart, but we have to pass through those other places, Okay, enough on counseling for a second because I want to set forward a question that I think goes to the heart of the Corinthian problem and it'll kind of spring out of that diagram as, as well. And the question is this. How do you tend to respond when you are sinned against? Because that's what's going on here in Corinth. Well, actually, let me just align that question a little bit more to make it a little bit more about exactly what Paul's going through. How do you tend to respond when someone you love is sinned against? Because there are, the, there are these people in the Corinthian church that feel like they're defending Paul by not forgiving the sinner. And I'm going to remind you of something I've said in the past, and you're going to hear me say it in the future because I think it's so important that we need to wrap our brains around it and staple it down. 
And that is that how we respond to sin reveals our true grasp of the gospel. How we respond to sin reveals our true grasp of the gospel. And what's so fascinating about this story here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is that what we encounter among the Corinthians are some of the more, you know, noble and respectable reasons for why people do not forgive. And because they are more noble and more respectable, it makes the Corinthians more vulnerable to being outwitted by the enemy. And so some of the ways that was playing out in the Corinthians, and maybe you can identify with this as well, but you know, one of the things they were saying is, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. He sinned against someone I love. You know, it's very noble. It's not about me. It's about somebody else. He sinned against somebody I love. I mean, let's be honest. Isn't it true that sometimes it's harder to forgive when the victim is somebody who is close to you, a close friend or a close family member? I mean, parents, you get this. I mean, you know what? You, you see your child maligned in some way, and oh my, does it cut deep. You wish it was you. It would be so much easier if it was you. Or your spouse loses a job, and it's totally, it's totally unfair and irrational. Or your best friend is, has been handled in a way that was so disloyal by other people, and it incites in us, all of it incites with us a kind of outrage. And what what we don't recognize all the time is that our, our outrage can quickly become a kind of bitterness that masquerades as love and loyalty to our kids or love and loyalty to our friends. We're convinced that, hey, you know, we're not, we're not Corinthians in this situation. We're, we're Jesus in the temple, overthrowing the tables, overthrowing the money changers with this righteous anger that we possess. Because it appears noble, because it's somebody else, but it's really destructive to your soul. It's a way we get outwitted by the enemy. Here's another one, and this is one they they encounter too, I'm sure. He sinned in ways that embarrass me. He sinned in ways that embarrassed us. You know, when you're close to someone in serious sin, I mean, isn't the reality that their sin tars everybody? Everybody gets splattered by their sin. So you log on to the internet, and you see the picture, the message, somebody that you love, and they're looking like the fool. And, it, and, and it's basically capturing not only sinful behavior, but, but really the worst moment of their life is now preserved on the internet for all to see, for everybody to look at, everybody to gape at. And you know in that moment, this isn't just about them. This reflects upon me as a parent. This reflects upon me as a friend. This reflects upon me because they're in the same church. And there is an understandable ache of humiliation that we can feel. But you know what? Sometimes 
The sin of those we love just reveals the reputation that we love, which is ours. The sin of those we love simply reveals the reputation that we love, which is ours. Our pain is not primarily about a sinner who's being seduced. It's about a reputation that's being trashed. And it's not first their reputation. It's our reputation. We love our reputation. And sometimes God will use other people's sins to expose that in us. And remind us of of the gospel. Remind us that the gospel takes us back to a Savior who died naked, who died alone, who died forsaken. And Hebrews says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. It was for the joy set before him that he despised the shame. It was for the joy set before him that he was able to forgive and to continue and then to turn and help those who would need to do the same. So Hebrews says, consider him. Consider him that you might not grow weary. See, the answer to shame is not to punish the repentant person. That's what the Corinthians are doing. Let's answer this problem by punishing him all the more. No, it's to forgive the sinner, the shameful person, just like Christ forgave us. Which leads us to a last way I think this may have played out within the Corinthian church. And it went something like this. He sinned and he must pay. He sinned and he must pay. In other words, his repentance is not good enough. No, sir. Not for what he did. Not for what he did for our boy. You see what he did to Paul? No, the simple whisper of a prayer of repentance, that's not going to work here. That might work somewhere else, probably over in that other church across town, because we know how liberal they are. But not here. See, there's something about us that kind of instinctively reacts to what we perceive to be the unfairness of forgiveness. After all, treating people as their sins deserve seems so much more right. It just seems so much more equitable. I should be able to remain angry. I should be able to emotionally punish him or her. I should be able to treat his past as if it's an ever-present part of his present, as if it still defines him. And so I can react out of him because the past that he did do isn't gone. Oh, no, no, I bring that forward each and every day, and that's what I look at him through. And that's what seems what's right because of the way he has hurt me. And so we kind of embed safety into forgiveness and think that one of the most important things about forgiving somebody is that we remain safe from ever being sinned against again. And we keep their past as a present label. And we kind of assume, you know, a moral high ground in the relationship which basically communicates each and every day, your main thing is to atone for your sins to me. I'm going to make you pay. And it's just unforgiveness. See, we don't recognize that what bitterness does is bitterness transforms us into a permanent victim. Bitterness transforms us into not only a victim, but starts at a victim, but then the victim quickly becomes a kind of spiritual tyrant. 
that thinks they're almost part of this unique group that is aggrieved in a unique way and therefore requires each and every day some kind of atonement from those that we're bitter towards that they might be able to win our favor for that afternoon. And that's not what the gospel's all about. See, the gospel reminds us of the gift that we have received, the free gift that we have received because what Christ has done and reminds us that that gift of forgiveness didn't come from Christ with this caveat. I'll forgive you, but you know, you guys, you still have to pay for it. This isn't really free. I just, I just advertise it as free, but it's not really free. It doesn't come with this caveat. Yes, you're forgiven, but that past, that's always going to define you. There's always a part of you that I'm going to see through what you've done in the past. That, that's not the gospel. The gospel is we have freely received that forgiveness. And with that forgiveness came a new identity. We didn't deserve it, but with that forgiveness came a new identity where God no longer looks at us from what we did in the past through our lies and our lusts and our mistakes and our failures. But But our sins are removed, it says in the Psalms, as far as the east is from the west. In fact... Passing that forgiveness along to other people is a condition of us receiving it from God. We get it from God, we pass it along. The Corinthians weren't passing it along, and so they were being outwitted by the enemy. And Paul's appealing to them in the same way I want to appeal to you. Paul was appealing to them because he understands the dangers of unforgiveness. We must understand it as well. To go back to my earlier illustration, you know, the Nazis weren't only outwitted. They lost the war. If you're holding bitterness... If you feel the Spirit of God is putting somebody's face before you, as as the Word has been preached this morning, somebody keeps coming up, and you're pushing it down, pushing it down. And maybe that somebody that's coming up is, is a church, last church, the Corinthian church in your mind. Here's what I want you to understand. The, the danger this morning is not simply that you're going to be outwitted. The danger is that you could lose the war. And so my appeal to you is straight from Ephesians chapter 4. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive you? That's how we're supposed to forgive one another. And that's what keeps us from being outwitted by the enemy. That we, like the allies, might win the war. Let's pray.